Welcome to Deep Dive Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cammie. In each episode, I'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I have been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and an inner critic on overdrive and no idea how to get past them. I've done this work on myself, for myself. I know how hard it is, but I want to make it easier for you and help you become your best self. You deserve it. In this episode, I'm chatting with my new friend, Dr. Robin Odegaard. Dr. Robin is a former competitive beach volleyball player turned high performance psychologist. She works in the space between your default life and your most fulfilled created life. She's the author of three books, and you can learn a little bit more about the imposter syndrome and self-limiting beliefs that she's overcome in her TED Talk, Creating Success Out of Chaos. Like me, she loves an intellectually stimulating conversation, and this is one. Ready to dive deep? Thank you for the lovely conversation we had through Lunch Club, and thanks for saying yes. So what I would love to know is what do you wish you had learned earlier? Well, the super simple answer to that is I wish I had learned to trust myself earlier. Ooh, that's deep. Can you elaborate? Um, Well, so I also, though, want to point out, and yes, I can, is that I really like where my life is now. And if I had learned something sooner, would I have ended up in a different place? Mm. So I'm happy to have a conversation about things that I feel like could have benefited me had I learned them sooner, but with a caveat that not if it's going to change the outcome. All right. With the understanding that it won't change the outcome. I mean, we are, we are <laughs> right. We hindsight's 2020, 20, but, right. um, and I feel the same way about my past. I mean, I went through hell and back and it made me who I am. I would never have to want to have to relive that. But boy, there's a few things I wish I'd learned earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, the reason I say I wish I had learned to trust myself earlier is that I let other people, people that I trusted, who I believed had my best interest in mind, people who I believed loved me and, and to be fair, do love me in a way that they're capable of. I allowed them to make decisions in my life that even at the time, even at the tender age of 16, 17, 18 years old, I knew like, I'm not loving this, but I didn't trust myself enough to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. It's that gut gut feeling that we now know is actually gut knowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are lots and lots and lots of examples. (laughs) I mean, the number of times that I had to go around that mistake before I learned to trust myself is shocking. Mm. Can you give me an example? Like if you were an observer on one of the big pivotal moments where, God, I wish I had listened to that. What would that have looked like from a witness perspective? So give a little background. Um, My second marriage should have never happened. I mean, he absolutely bullied me into marrying him by gaslighting and carrying on and all kinds of nonsense. And My father at the wedding asked me, why were you crying walking down the aisle? Mm. And at the time I made some excuse about, oh, it's a really emotional moment and I'm happy and, you know, whatever nonsense I came up with. The truth was, I think my gut knew I was making a huge and drastic mistake. 
Wow, that is massive. Yeah. If you could time travel back to that that moment, what could you have whispered in your ear that would have made all the difference? Pay attention. I mean, there were red flags. I mean, we're not even talking like one. We're talking like a whole dog and pony show with red flags waving and hey pay attention and emails from ex-girlfriends and the whole thing and did i pay attention no i did not oh wow wow and what do you think what do you think in in hindsight what did that cost you and what did that gain you well so it gained me a lot i mean that that marriage was a disaster from the word go but (laughs) I learned a lot about myself. I had the opportunity to get my schooling, my degrees, because he moved me and then basically said, yeah, we don't need you to have a job anyway. And so he was really happy for me to be just a student. I learned a lot. Yeah. You found the gifts in it. Well, it sounds like tense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It sounds like he's somebody who, who was motivated by those accolades and that positive feedback. He's extremely narcissistic. I mean, there there should be a picture of him in the dictionary next to narcissistic, along with a few other people that, you know, people can name. And, you know, lines are for other people. And anybody who will have him isn't good enough for him. Oh. And, you know, all, all the characteristics that you would just tick off, like, yep, uh-huh, mm-hmm, sure enough, love bombing. Okay, yep, got that one. Oh, yeah, that's a new one for me. <laughs> Oh, interesting. And, and was the transformation from previous Robin to present day Robin, was it very slow and gradual day by day or were there big incremental shifts? Um, so obviously some of it was slow and gradual and some of it were huge slap you in the face twice, pay attention type shifts. Ooh. Tell Um, me about one of those. The best advice I was ever given, Robin, you are resilient. Stop making decisions that make you prove it. Oh, oh, say that again. You are resilient. Stop making decisions that make you prove it. Oh, that's and when beautiful. he said it to me, this is just a passing acquaintance said this to me. I was so offended. I was so offended. How dare you suggest that the craziness that is my life is my own fault. Do you you not see this man I'm married to? Do you not see these people I'm friends with? Do you not see? And then it took me a couple of days to go, oh, right. I chose these people. I allow this to happen. Yeah. I keep going back to an empty well looking for a drink. Yeah, that's on me. Yeah, that is massive. Massive. Have you thanked that person? Have you talked to that person since... I don't even have contact with that person. Legitimately, it was one of those things where we like had an afternoon. We spent some time together. We chatted. We talked. And as he was walking out the door, he made that statement. And that was the last contact I ever had with him. Oh, my goodness. So I guess I thank him by repeating it. Uh huh. So other people can hear it. And some people get it. Like some people hear it and go, oh, yeah. And other people are like, what? What does that even mean? Yeah, I, I get that. I definitely get that. I was I was definitely my own worst enemy for years. Um, mm-hmm. And unless there's somebody to hold up that mirror, how do you know? Mm-hmm. How do you know? Gosh, were there any other moments like that? That was the really, really big one. Um, 
when my ex told me that I could never make it without him and that I was going to live under a bridge and that I would live in a cardboard box and who the hell did I think I was to write a book and all of that kind of stuff. And just the, when I was able to step away from the hurt that it caused and kind of say, do I believe this? And realize there was a part of me that did. And I was responsible for fixing that. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was another big shift for me is all right, self, how do we fix this? Yeah, that is massive. There's a quote that I love by Eleanor Roosevelt. You, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. And so mm-hmm. many, so many of us or so many times believe the garbage that other people throw in our path and, and pick it up and absorb it for our own, even though it's someone mm-hmm. else's garbage. Mm-hmm. For me, I gave the voice in my head a name, that voice that was constantly you're stupid. You can't do this. You're to this. You're to that. Whatever. I gave her a name. Ooh, what's her name? Harriet. Oh, I love it. And I tell her regularly, listen, you're part of me. You get to come along on the journey that we call life. You cannot drive and you cannot navigate. Sit in the back seat and be quiet. Nice. Nice. Giving her a name. And I tell this to clients all the time. Give that voice a name because that allows you to differentiate between I believe this and this is going on in my head. Somebody else put it there. Let me sort that. Mm -hmm. It's it's so valuable to understand that it may be somebody else's voice that you're hearing disguised Mm -hmm. as your own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, my inner voice, my my inner critic has a name too. His name is Cruella. And yes, he's male. I was shocked. Interesting. Um, and Cruella, through lots and lots and lots of inner work, is not allowed to touch the steering wheel. But if Cruella is calm, Cruella can sit in the front seat with the name mm. tag of advisor. Ah. And I get to choose to do what with whatever the information that he gives me, I get to choose. Whether it's, I'm going to listen to that. That's good advice. Yes, I should put pants on when I leave the house. (laughs) Or yeah, it's going to be cold. I'm going to put a coat on. Or, you know, whatever other, uh, or if I'm editing a book, like I just finished my book this last summer and I I let Cruella loose once the manuscript Mm. was finished. He tried to muscle in as I was writing it. I'm like, no, no, sweetheart. No, no, shush, shush. Mm. Like I, I talked to him like he was a, like an uncle or a grandpa who's Mm. overly protective, overly Mm. cautious. I don't, you know, I don't yell at him anymore because he doesn't yell at me anymore. Mm. But I say, you know, shush, I hear you. Thank you for your advice. Thank you. But that's not what we're going to do today. Now, shush. Mm. And just once in a blue moon, he he goes off the handle. My God, they hate you. It's going to go terrible. You're going to die, whatever. (laughs) And I say, all right, in the backseat. And if you don't zip it, you're going in the trunk. And yes, my bus has a trunk. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly what did what process did you go through to to be able to give that voice a name and to be able to recognize that as other people's input so I had always even before I had a degree in psychology before I ever went to school I kind of had I called them my three personalities and which is not true and it's not schizophrenic it's just kind of the way I described myself as so I'm very multifaceted And some of the facets are really shiny and polished. And some of the facets are less shiny and less polished. And some of it is just diamond in the rough. And that's allowed. And so early on, I kind of had these three 
personalities, for lack of a better word. I call them the bitch, the ego and the flirt. (laughs) And so I would and I would tell people, look, sometimes you might get this one. Sometimes you might get that one. But, you know, I do have a bitch in my back pocket. I will put her on her soapbox. And so when it came time to kind of pay attention and start realizing why do I have imposter syndrome? What is it that I believe is so wrong with, with who I am and why do I think I'm not smart? And, you know, all these things that I believed about myself and I started to be able to kind of unpick it, obviously not on my own. I had help from coaches and therapists and I was in grad school to be a psychologist. So there were psychologists freaking everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I had the ability to kind of start saying, all right, what are we going to call this? this noise. And that's where the name came from. Nice. And since then I've realized, you know, everybody has a little girl or or little boy, that little person that's in there and there's a scholar. And so I've really started to try and find who are the facets of me and, and how would I, how would I identify them as, as part of my whole? And it's been a lot of fun. Oh, nice. What are some of the other facets? So yeah, the little girl, the, the scholar, um, (laughs) The circus master, she, she trains my little dog circus tricks, which is great, great fun. fun. Yeah. And there's a, there's a video of us on my website under just me where of, of my little dog doing some circus tricks, which is a lot of fun. How fun. Um, But yeah, just different recognizing that I'm allowed to be all of these things at any given time. I'm allowed to change back and forth. I'm allowed to decide, nope, I'm going to be somebody different today. And that's okay. That, that, belief that, and that's one of the reasons I don't really love personality tests is they pigeonhole you so badly. Yeah. And that's just not who I am. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah. I wish Myers-Briggs personality test would just go away indefinitely. Mm. Um, I think it is so harmful to, to label someone either an introvert or an extrovert where not only is it contextual, but like, what mood am I in today? What mm-hmm. facet of me is is on display today? I think to label someone or have them label themselves and believe of themselves that they are just an introvert or just an extrovert when, when doing so prevents you from being your whole self or bringing your whole self to any given situation. Um, as humans, there's no such thing as I'm just exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I do enjoy the Enneagram because everyone is a little bit of all of them. And it mm-hmm. helps to understand like your default behaviors and thinking and whatnot, because you can't change what you don't see. Mm. And for that, I think the Enneagram is brilliant. You can, you know, like, oh, this feels like me. What is my path to growth? And then understanding that, yeah, it's a personality test. You can set it aside. But um, for people who are just dipping their toe in and just learning about their inner landscape, they may not even be aware that they have an inner landscape. Um, mm. It's a good door in. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So once you've, once you recognize some of these, some of these turning points in your life, did you, did you picture who you would have become today or, or are you different than what you've predicted or what you felt you might be? I was never someone who predicted my life. <laughs> I don't know why I just never did. It was never, that was never a thing for me. I just knew that I want to be happy. Mm, brilliant. I want, I want to be able to use my strengths and talents to benefit other people. 
I want to be able to stand up for myself when I'm being wronged. I want to be able to stand up for other people when I see them being wronged. Um, That's one of the reasons I do. I don't know if I told you this before. I do a thing called happy to listen where I go out and this was pre COVID. I haven't done it since COVID, but I go out in public with a sign that says happy to listen. It says happy with the number two in the middle. So happy number two, listen. And I sit in public and let strangers come up and talk to me. That's amazing. And it started because, you know, and we we just had one again recently where somebody famous, well-known committed suicide. And I thought, what if I happened to be in a place where that person walked by and they could have talked to me, but they didn't know it. And so I literally like tore a piece of cardboard off of a box, got out a Sharpie marker and wrote happy to listen on it. And if I travel, I carry it with me in airports or train stations or bus stations, wherever I am. I sometimes sit in malls. I, there's a, uh, rest stop, not too far from here on the highway. Sometimes I sit there and just let strangers talk to me. Wow. That's beautiful. It's amazing. The things that people will tell you when they realize that you have no ability to judge them because you're not part of their life. Yeah. It's that objective outside viewpoint. Mm hmm. Oh my God. That is absolutely beautiful. That, that is, I I hope that becomes a worldwide movement. I've done it a few times with people. Like people have said to me, can, can I come with you? And I'm like, sure, here's a piece of paper and a marker right on it. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes I carry it. If I'm somewhere, I'll stick it like on my suitcase. So it rolls with me. And more often than not, I get questions like, what are you doing? What does that mean? But often, especially if I'm sitting still somewhere, I'll get, can I really talk to you like about anything? Yeah. Anything. Wow. What's the most outrageous story you've heard from doing that? (sighs) Well, so it depends on how you define outrageous. Um, I had a young woman come up to me once and she was just bubbly, like bouncing. And I was like, what? (laughs) She just, I'm pregnant but I can't get hold of my husband and I haven't been able to tell him yet. And I need to tell somebody. And so I'm telling you, and she just, (laughs) and then right in the middle of it, her phone rang. She goes, Oh, it's him. And she ran off. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that was fun. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) So that was a fun one. On the flip side of it, I had a conversation with a woman who was scared of the beach because as a teenager, she had been raped on the beach and she absolutely loved the beach, but was so afraid she hasn't been back. And this is a woman who was well into her forties. Oh. And so we had a whole conversation about that. And, and she said, I've never told anybody about this. And I explained, you know, post-traumatic stress and how keeping it quiet is part of what creates the stress. And that post-traumatic growth is the ability to talk through it and grow from it and resilience. And it was a really powerful and exhausting and amazing conversation all at once. Oh, yeah. And then there was another time where, a guy, older gentleman, he probably had been 75, 80 years old. And he sat down and he talked to me for an hour and a half about his father and being in the Philadelphia mob and the, all the stories from like the 1920s. And it was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And his wife would pop in periodically and say to me, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> okay. And she'd go back off. <laughs> 
She probably heard the stories up before. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she had, but we had an amazing conversation about like when his father died and the string of black cars that was parked outside his mother's house and the car would pull up and two big men would get out and look around and then they would step back and then another man would get out of the car. He'd walk up to the door, hand his mother an envelope, go pay his respects to the casket, walk back to the car. They'd all get back in, go. The next car would come up, repeat. And the, the envelopes had money in them. Oh my word. Wow. If you're listening to this, I would love for you to pick up a piece of cardboard and write happy to listen and see what happens. Approach it with curiosity because curiosity comes from love Mm -hmm. and be willing to listen without judgment. It's really interesting that depending upon how I'm dressed depends upon if and who comes up and speaks to me. Oh, okay. So what... Uh, give me some examples. So if I'm in business clothes, no one will talk to me. <laughs> no, nobody's talking to me. If I'm wearing jeans and a baseball cap, yep, people are coming up and talking to me. Absolutely. How interesting. And why do you suppose yeah. that is? I think in business clothes, I just look too formal, too scary. Mm. When I did, I did this with um, a family, an African-American family, and it was interesting to see who came up to her because she was with her, she and her teenage son, I think, were in, at one table. I was at another table. The husband was at a different table. And then I had a middle-aged white man that was at a different table. And it was very interesting, interesting to observe who came up and talked to who. Mm, I bet. I bet. And, and where has- people felt safe. Has the setting influenced who who comes and talks to you? And that's an interesting question because, you know, obviously if I'm sitting in a mall, who comes to a mall? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm sitting in a rest stop on a highway, who has time to pass by and have a conversation? I did have someone in a rest stop one time come up and scream at me about how it was wrong for me to be doing a social experiment on people. And I mean, it was a huge, huge thing that he had made up. And I'm like, yeah, that's not what I'm doing. Don't you lie to me. I can see through you a mile away. I'm doing, <laughs> it was, I mean, huge scene. I was like, okay, some issues there. And did you, at that point, did you just leave or did you say, okay, I'm no. happy to listen to you? I just was like, okay, well, that's not what's going on here, but you're free to make that up. And he eventually got tired of carrying on and went away. Wow. Have you ever not felt safe? I had one situation where a guy sat down and talked to me and he was drinking out of a plastic, a child's plastic cup with a little straw. And I thought that was really weird. And then I realized that it was hard liquor. He had hard liquor in there, which, okay, well, that's one thing. But a little bit into the conversation, he also told me he was carrying a handgun. Oh, that's a problem. Yeah. Which was... Not, I mean, did I not feel safe? That's probably taking it a bit far. I mean, I understand guns. I've, I've shot guns. I get guns. But in a public place with someone who's drinking, who is actively carrying a handgun, there's risks to that. Yeah. You, you ac- accepted the risks there. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I did tell him that, you know, I didn't think that was the wisest choice on the planet, but I also was obviously very careful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's a question, a completely unrelated question, but 
it seems to me that a lot of people who go into psychology do so because there's some part of themselves they want to understand. Do you think that's the case? I think that there are certain group of people, psychologists or otherwise, who want to understand themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be wrong for someone who didn't want to understand themselves to choose to be a psychologist. So to say that, oh, all the people self-selected being psychologists because they're broken, I don't think is a true statement. Okay. I'm also just as glad that people who think they have all their act together and they're not broken and nothing's wrong with their lives aren't trying to be psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's just that as psychologists, we're more aware of what is broken in our past than maybe some other people might be. Mm. I also feel like, and this is true, I'm sure it's true of your clients. There's a lot of people on the planet with a lot of brokenness who are not psychologists. Oh, yes. Yes. I would say the great majority of people, the great majority of people are broken in some way. Yeah. Um, I had someone say to me, someone say to me once, you think everybody should have therapy. And I said, I believe everyone everyone should be so lucky. Yes. I think everyone could benefit from therapy. Yeah. And therapy has such a bad name. I mean, I'm not a therapist by any stretch. I'm a high performance psychologist. I'm a high performance coach. Um, But having that space to talk through and get stuff out of your emotional brain in words so that your logical brain has access to it is even if you only just talk in the mirror is beneficial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Definitely. Well, I think I, I became a coach because, um, I was moved. Mm -hmm. I have walked the creative path. I understand the struggles of a creative and, um, and then the coaching that I received really, really did some major internal shifting for me. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's so much I wish I had known Mm. that, that I wish I had that external objective viewpoint to give me a little clarity of why I wasn't living the way I wanted to, why I couldn't seem to get past the issues that I kept putting in my way. (laughs) Yeah. The thing for me was because I was a um, competitive beach volleyball player and some days I could show up and I would be on my game and I could just play. And other days I would show up and it was like, I'd never been on the sand before in my life. And I really wanted to understand why is that? What is it about the human condition that we can be so good at something and then be so lousy at it. Did you find the answer? There are different, there are a lot of different questions. There's not a simple, oh, fix this and it'll never happen again. <laughs> I mean, that's, I wish there were. That's just part of being human is that those kind of things happen. But I did find a lot of tools to help notice when things are going off the rails and get it back faster. Mm. What's, what is an easy tool that you can leave our listeners with? My favorite tool, whether it comes to dealing with yourself or disagreements with others or anything, recognize your own psychosomatic response to stress. Recognize the way your body feels when it goes into fight or flight mode. Because if you notice how it feels, you can catch it. And that's the point where you have a choice. Am I going to go down this crazy rabbit hole where my fight or flight instinct takes me? Am I going to go around this circle again or am I going to choose a different path? But if you don't know what your psychosomatic response is to stress, 
you're not going to catch it. Mm, I love that. I love that. Noticing is always the first step, right? For anything that you want to change or improve. I mean, you think about doing a, getting stronger, doing a workout. You can't know what you're, what needs to improve if you can't see it. If mm-hmm. there's no one on the outside pointing to you saying, you know, watch your form here. Your, your knees shouldn't be above your, uh, ahead of your toes or whatever that is. Um, and noticing. Mm-hmm. noticing. And the ability being willing, right? Because before you can notice, you have to be willing. Oh, good point. <laughs> yeah. If somebody says, hey, your form's wrong, you say, hey, shut up, jerk. I didn't ask you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or if even your little subconscious mind is like, hey, 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 and you ignore it, you're never going to learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, you have to noticing. give it room to say more than just, hey. Awesome. Awesome. Our favorite question is why? And we'll ask why, because we have no idea. And we'll ask why to the point of annoying the achievers out of everybody. And as adults, we suddenly start believing we have to have all the answers. And rather than asking why, we make it up. Uh, Yeah. What if we stopped making up why and started asking? I love that. Yeah, I didn't ask. (laughs) I didn't ask for help. I'm, I'm exceedingly independent as a child. I was rewarded for being independent and... Mm-hmm. Um, doing my own thing. And it's still hard for me sometimes to be vulnerable and say, I can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. So I know every time I feel that, oh, that uncomfortableness, it's like, oh yeah, that's my, that uncomfortable feeling. That's my, my roadmap that says that way is growth. That mm. way is improvement. That way is change. Yeah, I understand that. I'm the oldest of eight children. So not only was I responsible for being independent, I was responsible for being the leader and having the answers. And you're the oldest, you know better and all of those things. And even in, I mean, you know, you're a coach, even in my career, I'm the rock in the hurricane. I'm responsible for creating success out of chaos. I'm responsible for asking all of the questions, but I'm also responsible for having a mentor and having a coach of my own and having a peer group and having a coaches helping coaches group and having, you know, all these people who I can go to and say, I'm broken. And I can't say that in life because if I fall apart, everybody's like, Oh my God, my anchor went away. So I can't do that in my everyday life, but I do have a variety of people that I can go to and say, I am not okay. That's wonderful. And, and from the outside, you seem so put together and so polished. And all the facets I see are just mm, mirror smooth. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you say, yeah, I need help. I can't do this. That's beautiful. I, I learn. I change. I grow. I ask for help. I get one of my favorite things. And it's one of the reasons I do my podcast, Quick Hits. Change my mind. Make me think. Help me come up with something that changes the way I look at information. I think part of what makes me a good coach is my willingness to be vulnerable and be able to say, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. How fun will that be? Mm -hmm. Same. Absolutely. I love your podcast, by the way. Quick Hits is awesome. And it's so digestible. 10 minutes, four people, one topic. Love it. So um, back to your podcast. How can people find your podcast? Quick Hits? 
Yeah. So you can go, you can search it quick hits and it will come up, but it's faster if you search Dr. Robin. So D-R-R-O-B-Y-N on wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find it. It's also on YouTube. If they follow me on LinkedIn, it's all, it's there as well. Well, Robin, I feel like we could continue talking for hours and hours. we, We haven't even touched on communication fingerprints and why what you said isn't what they heard and all of the fun academic stuff that I do. So yeah, we could talk for days. Let's just plan another one of these. Yes, let's do that. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you for chatting with me. For more good juju, visit cami.coach, C-A-M-I dot coach. 